1: Uh, Jacqueline, can you hear me?
0: Hi, Chris. I can you hear you. How you sound, are you? You sound great too. I've got
1: <laughs>
0: And I even have a little Congolese wedding cloth that I get to lean on as I speak to you.
1: Did you bring your own Congolese wedding cloth no. to lean on? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past me, but no, I did not. You mean you mean Paul provided that for you? I you know, I think Paul just, uh, he just knows aims to please. Yeah. He does. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, it's so good that we're finally doing this. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm really glad to do it too. Before you're out there. I mean, this is nice because you. This, it's, it all kind of still belongs to you, right? You know what I mean? The book belongs to you now, and it does. It does. You and then it will be out there.
0: Well, and it's funny because you you write it, but you're not always sure that it's you know will you access it all the first time you've done oh, it yeah. so it's um i know i'm in good hands
1: yeah no and yeah and i um as you know when we put this out there we'll make hay with the book and tell people about it and but i really i really want this to so so i'll we'll, we'll frame it with a book but really what i want to talk to you about which is just what flows into this writing which is just how you see the world and the way you think and um, and and that you all you are already articulate about all of that. But yeah, I'll be your I'll be I'll lead. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, Chris, how hey, are we? Hi, Krista, It's Paul. Hey, Paul. We were just saying that we we feel like we don't see you as much anymore. I know. I miss you guys. I know. Gals, us uh, well, mostly gals actually. <laughs> you, Occasional guy. You're very faint. We do have some guys. Sorry. We we have a minority of guys, but we have guys. Yes. Yeah, we got good guys. We cherish the the Y chromosomes in our midst.
0: <laughs>
1: I just want to give Jack on a quick note. I want you to be careful. Some you're kind of looking around while you talk that changes your sound. So okay. When you're answering, just try to look straight ahead. I'll just
0: and peer into the eyes of the Buddha.
1: And be careful about. <laughs> I um,
0: mean, you really set me up, Krista. <laughs> uh,
1: I wonder, uh, I wonder, do you do that for everybody, Paul? Does this American life also have the Buddha to look at? No, only, only, uh, that only is people, so sweet. Only the most peaceful, loving people. Ah. okay. Well, but they all end up peaceful and loving at the end. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so Jacqueline, would you um, tell me something mundane like what you had for breakfast?
0: Um, I had oatmeal for breakfast with a young Pakistani entrepreneur, actually, who is wonderful.
1: <laughs> um, what's the weather like in New York today?
0: It's bitter cold and incredibly yeah. bright blue sky, but all anybody's talking about is coronavirus. Oh, my
1: God. I know. And people are making jokes about it, which makes me nervous.
0: I know, because it's a super serious thing.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, Yeah, it's very cold here also, but beautiful, bright, sunny. And I'm in the booth making one tiny last adjustment. Okay. That's how it is here. I went running, and it was
0: bitter Mm. cold. But the the, the light Mm. um, and the blue took my breath away. So it was a perfect way to start the day. Yeah.
1: Do you have a bracelet on or something? Am I just? Or is this, is this Could it be
0: my um, earrings?
1: I heard some jingling.
0: I got bells on my toes, no, Paul. I think I see. What
1: is this here?
0: This is. Should I take it off? I think you
1: should take it off. Oh, okay. Ow. Oops,
0: Sorry, Krista. I've got a huge. Oh, hold on. Okay. A toe there ring. There you go. <clears>
1: hmm. <throat> And if you tap the table, the mic picks it up. So just... You know. You're asking he's, me to be so... He's really hey, cramping Bob? your stuff. Goodness. Goodness. I use my hands. body. I live in my
0: body. You
1: can use your hands. Just don't tap the table. Oh, goodness okay. gracious. <sighs> Sorry. It's all right. Okay. Let's do this. Um, let's do this. Okay. So, so, um, you... Uh, Jacqueline, I think you use the language of moral imagination. Um, You're the only person I know who uses those words as much as I do. (laughs) Um, And really, moral imagination, moral revolution, moral courage. I mean, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, And so I'm just curious to start about where you would go with your earliest memory of what the word moral meant When you were growing up in the 1960s in your big Catholic Austrian immigrant military family. Wow.
0: I think the word moral for me conjures up first grade classroom of Sister Mary Theophane in West Point, (laughs) Highland Falls, New York. Um, Looking at a poster of a rice bowl with two hands holding it. And being told by um, the nun um, that we had an obligation always to think about people who were less fortune, fortunate mm. than we were, and then her mantra was that "to whom much is given, much is expected," and I think that instilled in me in a deep and crystallized way um, that we're here for each other.
1: That's 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 so consonant, really, with. With what you've walked into, I mean you've expanded it infinitely, but that's really it's really interesting that that's that that's the answer you give well it's funny um,
0: i've been thinking about the past a lot um, a, a couple of months ago, I went to say thank you to my tenth, to my fifth grade teacher, mm. um, who as it turns out has alzheimer 's mm. um, but her memory of 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago, um, is incredibly acute. And before we went, my mother gave me this little n- notebook that I kept, I guess, all of the little kids had, which, which was called My Thoughts. And, um, right. and it was very humbling <laughs> and also reinforcing because um, every day she would give us a prompt. Um, my dream is, and mine was, to travel around the world and meet people of other cultures and other countries. And I collect. I collect dolls because it teaches me about other Mm. people and other cultures. I was definitely one note. And then I came upon um, one that said, it bugs me when. And I said, (laughs) it bugs me when um, people make fun of other people, especially, and I used, you know, handicapped, which was the language of the time, especially handicapped people. I think that... Um, all of us should spend one day in a wheelchair or in some other way being handicapped ourselves so we could imagine what it feels like. And I started laughing when I read it. I was like, I'm not sure how much I've progressed since I was 10. <laughs> On the other hand, um, I think I think we are so often imprinted as children. Mm-hmm. And if, we're in, if that part of us is encouraged, it allows us to live more fully
1: into it yeah absolutely and um you know I really see that you know y- you and i have have spoken before and and in fact our friends and and we've we've had we've had a number of conversations across the years um and you know i've I've always so um admired and loved your story of you know how much you know you became an investment banker um in the 80s uh, as a young woman, and you were great at it, and you actually loved it. You were energ- energized by it. But that's the story about how you eventually, really with a sensibility that is very kind of you know, a straight line from what you just described, um, you walked away from that really promising career um, because you, you saw that even though you love banking and finance, that it wasn't serving the people who needed it most.
0: Yeah. It was quite stark in the early um, or mid-80s. I guess it was 1986 um, during the financial crisis in Latin America to be writing off hundreds of millions of dollars in loans mostly given to the elites and then spending my weekends where I was always drawn in favelas and in slums and seeing such color and aliveness and work and diligence and yet those people – um, had no access whatsoever to the banks. And that made no sense to me in terms of uh, that worldview that was already part of me. And um, around that time, I I came across an article about um, Muhammad Yunus and the, and, uh, the Grameen Bank. Um, he had started microfinance mm-hmm. in, I guess, 1976. And I was so intrigued by this idea that I could use my skills for... Uh, to work with people who were left outside the system. And
1: I guess that was the beginning for me. And then you ended up actually starting the first microfinance bank in Rwanda um, before the genocide there, right? Yeah, seven years before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was,
0: and I guess it's the power of youth and it's what makes me so excited about this next generation is that you don't know what you don't know. I thought, right. well, three years of banking, why not start a bank? Um, and uh, and yet it was that uh, minimal skill set, language, and incredible enthusiasm and probably a bit of recklessness that allowed me to um, just start, learn, make, create relationships that mattered. And um, before I knew it, we were making a little bit of history in one tiny corner of the world. And mm-hmm. so from a very early age, I also saw that, was possible to create change.
1: And, you know, something else that, um, that I so recognize in, you know, you and I are roughly the same age, and um, I'm so aware right now at this point in the young 21st century of all these echoes from kind of 60, the 1960s. How things have come full circle, or turned out so differently than we expected they would, with starting oh out when we did, right? So, just reading. So, you've written this book, um, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, and um, practices to build a better world. And you know, it's a it's a book of hope, of a really muscular hope. Uh, what do you say in your the manifesto? Hard, what's that language? You have a hard, hard edge, hard <laughs> edged hope, um, made of Patience and kindness, resilience and grit. That's from the manifesto of, of Acumen which you lead. Um, um, but it's all but 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 you take you walk there, or you, you 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 are now at this point in your life, um, inside Acumen and in the world reflecting and writing about um, the complicated road to this mm. to this particular to this hard-edged hope, right? And you you know, you talk about you left Rwanda in 1989, for Palo Alto to go to Stanford Business School, the Berlin Wall falls that year. The Soviet Union disintegrates. It's the end of history. I mean, you are you are a banker, and you're remaking banking, and capitalism has won. Um, and you made a statement in a speech, and I believe this was, I believe this was at Forbes. I believe it was with it was at a forum for business leaders, and you said, you know, Steve Jobs spoke to your business class, and. You said, "We thought we needed a technological revolution, but we needed a moral revolution, and and that's what you're really writing about now and and steeping in. And so, you know, just how would you start to talk about that? What that realization, what that phrase, holds for you? Yeah, the when I think back to that time,
0: um, and it was w- really within the in the course of a month." that the Berlin Wall fell and then Jobs got on the stage and said, you know, technology will reshape the world. And both forces did. Capitalism and technology did reshape the world and did lift a billion people out of extreme poverty. Um, and at the same time, it has left us, both forces have left us more unequal, more divided, more divisive, hmm. um, and facing uh, long-term, not not long-term, short-term climate, climate catastrophe. And so when I say we need a moral revolution, it's really one that is not dictated from above, but it's a reframe of the system because we have had a system that has put profit at the center. And what we mm. need to do is shift that to put humanity and the earth at the center. And that is not going to come from above. That is going to come from each of us changing our ways i think krista that we're in this moment where we know our old and current institutions have run their course yeah but we've not reimagined what they need to become and so because there is no roadmap we can only hold on to a moral compass and that for me is the beginning of the moral revolution
1: um yeah i I, I agree with you that we that that the so much of what we inherited from the twentieth century, it it's not it, it doesn't it's not even it, it doesn't work, but it also doesn't even make sense, you know. So younger people, I mean, and basic institutions don't make sense. I mean, the economy doesn't make sense, but schools don't make sense, and healthcare doesn't make sense. But we're in this, we're this in between generation. That can see what's broken, but has to make up the new forms. And when you say, when you when you point to the need for a shared moral compass, um, that is also the work. I mean, how in this world of proximity mm. to difference, right in this globalized world, that as you've pointed out, even though we were talking about it in the nineteen eighties, and the nineteen nineties, we we could not envision. Um, what it has become, and what it's meant, and what it's given us to reckon with, um, so that yeah, I think that's really what I want to talk to you about how do we how do we start to develop a shared moral compass, and I think that's what you're working on in the spheres that you're where you're engaged,
0: yeah, I actually think that we need a new skill set for the twenty first century because when you and I were growing up um the world operated in separate spheres. There were rich countries, poor countries, capitalism, communism, right, um, right, and all those countries, each religion thought yeah. they're they, they rich had and the poor. De-
1: they were divided up into capitalists or communists, also.
0: That's right. Yeah. And now there's elements of the rich and the poor, of the developed and the developing, in every country. And mm-hmm. we're starting to understand. Well, we need to understand that we can't just go to the polarities. It's we're having this broken debate. If it's not capitalism, then it's socialism. Right. Rather right. than one right. that says, How do we take the best of each, move beyond ideology, focus on the problem that we want to solve, and then bring the best of us to bear on solving that problem because that will bring out the best in who we are as well. And so the skills which I also think um are not the soft skills. We have when 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 I was growing up we relegated skills like The moral imagination, like listening, like understanding identity as a tool rather than as a bludgeon, holding opposites without um, rejecting either side, those are the hard skills. Mm -hmm. And those are the skills we need to impart in our children, in in our universities, in our workplaces. If we want to do the, the weaving and the integration that I do believe, as you said, is the work and um, and 20 years of investing, um, trying to reimagine capitalism and using those tools to invest in entrepreneurs that are first and foremost trying to solve tough problems of poverty has taught me that yeah. the greatest predictor is not even the business idea of real success. The greatest predictor is the kind of character that holds some of those skills that I was just talking about.
1: Yeah, I want to come back to that in a minute. I mean, I, I do I do want to ask you if um, – you're so right. The, the discourse is broken because in some ways it's weirdly reverted back to the 1980s. Like the only way we can discuss this is if it's capitalism or socialism. Mm. Um, but I, I – and of course, the things we're reckoning with are not just about capitalism and capital, but but that is at the center because that's so much of what we put to the center, as you said, profit – um, value, worth, with so much around profit and economic value, have were you have you been surprised though? Because I, I still, as somebody who grew up in the Cold War, um, at, at the at the same time that I that I know this is the reckoning that we need to be having that and this moral reckoning with with capitalism seeming like a caricature of itself, and yet it's a huge thing in this country to be questioning capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but well, I mean, I think that goes to identity. Yeah,
0: that um, that it's it's such a part of our identity yeah. that we forget that we actually are the system. We are the system. That we actually have it within our control, and it's and it's part of our of our identity as well to question um, and to make it better, to renew it. That that is. Definitely we're going back to the 60s to one of your earlier comments. Um, so, yeah, I think the easy way out is to damn it or praise it rather than wrestle with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the hard work is the wrestling.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, so Acumen, which you began as the Acumen Fund. When did you start Acumen Fund? Like two thousand one, two thousand one yeah, at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. um, uh, works with the poorest people in the world. I mean, when you say when you said a minute ago that what success looks like, um, it has to do with character. I think I, I think it's important to articulate that that what what you are working on and the and the and people all around the world who you see and engage makes this assumption or this insistence that the market and the way capital the way we live economically using capitalism the 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 using capitalism's power and its tools can be part of Lasting and generative social change, and it's that kind of uh, entrepreneurship um, that needs character to succeed. But you're also like redefining what you the, what we generally mean when we when we say succeed, especially in terms of entrepreneurship. That's right. In, a,
0: in, in brief, it's moving away from money, power fame, which is the shorthand for what we're seeing around us too much today to um, celebrating those people who release the most human energy into the world. And so when I, one of the great joys of my life, particularly now, because I'm seeing it more than ever, is to work with entrepreneurs who aren't cowed by this idea that if they're not making a lot of money, they are not as successful as other entrepreneurs or they are not as real. Um, Mm. in part because some of them uh, are making enormous change. I think of um, Ned Tozen and Sam Goldman, um, who had the audacity in 2007 to say, we want to eradicate kerosene from the earth. It's been 130 years since Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, 1.5 1.5 billion people have no access to electricity. No one else is solving it. We certainly aren't solving it in the same old, same old ways of separation. We're cha- either charity on one hand or traditional investment on the other. So let's go after solving this problems. This problem, let's look at the poor as our customers. Let's try to understand from their perspective the moral imagination. Let's build something that's affordable, that's beautiful, that's useful, that lasts, let's figure out how to finance it, a traditional capitalist would say, too
1: hard. Hmm. Um, and they started in Pakistan, is that right?
0: Am I no. that right? India? No, sorry. Tell me where they started. They started um, in India, although they learned very quickly that they had to manufacture in China if they were going to get the okay. solar product affordable enough for people who make two or three dollars a day mm-hmm. to buy. Um, And for five, six, seven years, we weren't sure whether this company was going to make it. But a couple of weeks ago, we were able to announce that um, uh, they've just brought light and increasingly electricity to 100 million of the world's poor. Um, That's a big number. Mm -hmm. That's moving the needle. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I think about what has driven Sam and Ned, um, it hasn't been getting rich. It's been lighting the world. Um, And they've done it. And we need to celebrate them as role models. Um, We don't only need new
1: business models, but we need to celebrate new role models. And when you said that the traditional capitalist would have turned away, it's partly because where they started, as you say, was they weren't, (laughs) this was not this, this project that was Selling to people who had lots of money to spend, right? I mean, is that – I'm assuming it had to start very small. Oh, my goodness. It started with nothing. Yeah. These guys did not
0: have, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have know how to price it. They had no distribution mechanism. The poor didn't trust them. They were fighting an entrenched status quo. Kerosene is used by over a billion people who pay 40 cents a day, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so they were fighting on every front. And what, I, what I've learned over the last 10 years particularly is that the idea of patient capital is critical because it gives entrepreneurs a long period of time. But again, it's where the real work is, Krista, is that um, you need more than capital. And you actually need investors who have an ethos that is focused on um, giving more than you extract, which sounds antithetical, to investment, but if you move from that place to align investors and entrepreneurs toward solving the problem, we can we can pull on lots of different sources of capital, nonprofit capital, mm-hmm. government, um, working with corporations that are offering their supply chains, um, but it takes all of us. And when I look now at that $100 million, um, we'll get our money back. But our ethos was, and we have already, um, but our gotten a big chunk of it back, but our ethos was using the right kind of capital, Um, I guess with the right kind of entrepreneur to solve a a problem that was bigger than either of us could ever imagine solving ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's the moral revolution. Right.
1: There's a place where you say... um what if the golden rule were not "do unto others as you would have them do unto you," but also give more to the world than you take from it? Yeah, it's such a simple rule. And again,
0: right now when I when I see all this anger at you know you're a bad person because you're wealthy,
1: yeah.
0: um, you're a fuzzy-headed nonprofit entrepreneur because you clearly don't know how to manage. We're just we're just We're just screaming at each other. If we moved from a a metric that, or an ethos that recognized we're all part of this together, that we actually do face enormous changes that are going to impact all of us. Um, And we just use that simple moral idea of giving more than we take Hmm. The whole world would change. Hmm. We'd literally go from thinking our, ourselves just as consumers to citizens,
1: hmm.
0: and um, and focus on sustainability rather than you know celebrating selfishness. Right. And those are the mantras I'd like to see, um, which I think this next generation wants to embrace.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do want to do some. Um, I want to talk about language um, before we go much further. Acumen as you started it and this has continued works with the poorest people in the world. Um, those were the people you saw, you saw who the, who, who the banking industry did not see or serve. Um, and, you know, and you write about this and, you know, that, that moral imagination has so much to do with what we see and the words we use. Um, you, have chosen to continue to use the word poor um, but you don't speak in terms of disadvantaged i mean would you talk to me a little bit about um, yeah what what you're describing here and and, and the words that actually capture w- what you see and and what you would what what this moral revolution would take in differently yeah i do think we need um
0: a different language, a language that gets comfortable, again, with what we too often look at as soft,
1: yeah.
0: um, and I would include love in there because I think real love is a hard skill. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I get exhausted when we jump on words um, and, again, ascribe a per, uh, ascribe the, the a, a, an evil characteristic to someone using that word before we even interrogate it. And so when we were writing our manifesto, um, particularly given that we invest and we invest alongside more traditional investors, um, the phrase, it starts by standing with the poor, was incredibly important to us. And there were people on our team who were really offended by that. Why can't we say it starts by standing with low-income people? Right. It sounds demeaning. It sounds demeaning and also— as I have come to understand poverty, I reject the notion that poverty is just about income. Mm-hmm. When I look at people who are excluded from opportunity because of their race or their class or their, or not their, or their race or their ethnicity or their religion, that is a kind of poverty as well, mm-hmm. that we've got to think about the opposite of poverty being dignity or having opportunity and choice. Mm-hmm. And so we couldn't come up with a better word than poor. The other piece of it was that as investors, this pushed us toward uh, our own bottom line, if you will, that when we look at making an investment, we have to ask ourselves, as as enticing as it is (laughs) in a world that still looks at you in terms of your financial returns, To say, well, these people are vulnerable, even though they're middle class. Um, We wanted to be the organization that pushed ourselves, took on something more difficult by investing on behalf and with the truly disadvantaged, the poor. And we also don't mention the environment. And that was... um, Also, when you think about it or when we thought about it, there are lots of organizations that focus on the environment first and foremost, and goodness, we need them. But very few investors put the poor first, Mm. and for us, increasingly, and I think this is something that's deepened in my own learning and our own learning, um, we've integrated this idea that if you care about the poor, you have no choice but to To care about the climate and that we have to care about the poor for multi generations because, in the context of climate change, there is no doubt about who gets hurt most. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, we're now one of the largest climate finance investors for the poor um, in East Africa.
1: Um, I think you've learned some things um, across these several decades. That felt that that you learned the hard way, and that feels somewhat counterintuitive, and and would have felt counterintuitive Um, in our generation, or just speaking for myself. You know, I think uh, when I was growing in the sixties, there's you know there's all this save that's the save the world mantra. Mm -hmm. So much so much damage was done in the name of saving the world. I mean, you you really, as you said, I I think that's such an important statement that the op- opposite of poverty is is not wealth but dignity and and you've also really in very granular ways gotten into the fact that dependence is also and and en- it can also be an enemy of dignity and that that the language of helping people is problematic and and i think also counterintuitively in this as you say this very stark polar polarized debate about capitalism being good or evil I mean, you have learned that the market can be a powerful listening device to poor people, For in fact. um, That capitalism can be a a humanizing way um, to to accompany the poor. What I think a lot of people don't understand, and I
0: didn't understand, is that um, in a way we make a mistake by looking at – Poor economies. When you're looking at a community of low income people, you're looking not at a market economy, you're looking at a political economy. And so, where there is no real market, everyone has their hand in the lives of the poor. Um, Mm -hmm. The government officials that usually often, not usually, but often um, make low income people pay for whatever grant or income support they're getting, the religious leaders who make a lot of decisions on their behalf, the family structures, mothers-in-laws, all of these certainly aid organizations, charities, there's mafias who control the markets in very extortive ways. And so the power of a fair marketplace where people actually can, can have choice and dignity over their own lives, that is revolutionary. And if you've not spent time in slums or in rural areas controlled by bureaucracies and um, the politics of poverty, that can be hard to understand. But what I've seen in so many of the companies that we've helped build is the Incredible power. I mean, going back to delight, and um, I remember sitting in this hut. I, I talk about this in the book, but sitting in this hut with this grandmother named Tedesia, um, and I was with this big, burly Australian man who had a um, who was talking to Tedesia about this light that she had purchased for thirty dollars. And um, I said, Tedesia, why don't you tell David what you like about the light? And you know, I was used to that. I'd seen people who've been beneficiaries of charities say thank you a hundred times over um, in the presence of a donor for what right. they've been given. Right. But but then I said, now why don't you tell them what you don't like and how he could improve this light. And watching her, this little woman, speak to this big man and say, you know, number one, maybe if I had a string, I could hang the light from the ceiling and it would make right. the room better. and Number two and number three, and each time gaining more confidence. Suddenly, I realized that she wasn't pandering, nor was she begging, but she was talking to him as a customer, right. and he wasn't standing with this false or false arrogance or certainty. But he was trying to earn her trust, and in that interaction was the opportunity and the seeds of each of their dignity. And that for me, I thought, I understand why I do this work and what I've been trying to do my whole life. It, 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 it was made so manifest in that moment between these two people whose worlds could have been so distant from each other and
1: reinforced how much we need each other. You yeah, um, know, I was thinking as I was, as I was reading you, getting ready for this, that I was— um I was recently in a in a, a conversation about metrics, which is also something that's <laughs> important to you, Like, how do we measure what matters? Which we really we were just uh, try, just now deciding we need to learn. Um, and um, Srinija Srinivasan, who's um, who's actually on our board, but you know h- h- was one of the early early employees of Yahoo. She she made this statement that I, that's just been rolling around in my head since then that. That we've now seen technology on capitalism, but we have yet to see technology on humanism. Hmm. And I feel like that was a, it's a way to talk about what you've been doing: capitalism on humanism. Which, which I feel like in these in these, uh, yeah, in the caricatures that are going around now, also the the strident debate that the possibility of that is not held open. I mean, you, and I've you know I've heard you use language that I find so. And you're now describing what this looks like on the ground, you know, to use the power of the market but not be captive to it. Or in the in the manifesto, um, you say investment it, as a means. It, yeah, not an end. it in demands investing as a means, not an end. Daring to go where markets have failed and aid has fallen short, it makes capital work for us, not control us. Mm. Well, and I get to see it,
0: yeah. as you said. I get to see it, and I and I believe that the more this next generation of entrepreneurs sees it and recognizes how much potential they have to affect change. Um, if they are open to seeing themselves more as seekers without having all the answers, yeah. they can be part of the reimagination and the building of um, completely new models um, of capitalism. And that's that's where we have to move. I mean, you talk about metrics and measuring what matters rather than what we can count – I remember a board meeting probably 10 years ago where we were getting um, lots of praise for our metrics, and I said to my board, well, the good news is, you know, we're seen as being incredibly effective with our metrics, and the bad news is uh, it's a very small pool because the truth (laughs) is we're pretty (laughs) mediocre. Because at that point, we really could only count outputs. How many bed nets have we made? How many solar lights have we Uh, sold, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, things we can
0: count, right, right. What we could count. Yeah. And then 2012, 13 came along, and the cell phone was suddenly becoming ubiquitous. There are now more cell phones on the planet than people. In Pakistan, where I was a couple weeks ago, a smartphone now costs $11. And so, Mm. right, people have access so a few years ago, our team developed what we called Lean Data, which was a way of texting um, five, 6,000 customers from one of our companies at a time, asking a series of questions um, from which we could deduce not only whether the product, let's stay in the, the realm of light, um, how much longer people stayed awake at night. Did, they, um, did their health improve? Did their children hmm. um, get better do better in school, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And importantly, how can you improve the product? What doesn't work about it? And for the first time in my 30-plus years of doing this work, suddenly I was finding the perspectives of the people we are here to serve telling us whether there was impact or not. And that then opened the possibility of aligning investor interest with entrepreneur interest with customer interest in a way that i had never seen particularly
1: for people who you know live at the margins i feel like there's a there's a there's a sentence in your in your book that to me feels like an operating question for moral imagination and it's absolutely reflected in what you just described you said the question because of course I think moral imagination, it has to do with the words we use, what we see, but also the questions we're asking, right? Um, And so you says the question is not really how to make people better off, but what does it mean to be a whole human being?
0: Mm. And also, Krista, I'm so delighted that you said um, operational, the operating model. Mm. Um, When I think of moral imagination... You know, we always say the humility to see the world as it is and the audacity to imagine what it could be. Yeah. But I break it down into four steps almost that are truly operational. You know, one that it starts with empathy, but it can't end with empathy and putting yourself in another person's shoes because that that too often leads to distancing and the reinforcement of the status quo. Oh, those poor people that their life must be terrible.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the second step is immersion. You know Brian Steven would, Stevenson, the civil rights um, advocate, will call it proximity, but you have to get close to the people that you want to serve. You have to understand their problem, and the third piece is analysis. Then you have to understand the system in which they're operating, and then you have to act. And my team will say, "Well, Jacqueline, moral imagination isn't a verb. You know, sometimes we have to just—we just have to propel ourselves into action from um, that sense of knowing because in the knowing, we have a responsibility to do. Mm. And so I like to think of it both as a beautiful, a beautiful phrase, but also one that demands that we extend that beauty um, to actually make a difference, rather than just imagine.
1: Right. So it's aspirational, but it's also f- also fiercely pragmatic. It
0: is fiercely pragmatic. Yeah. And it's funny because people often, in fact, when we talk about polarities and holding opposites and tensions, and I've had more than a couple of investors say, "You know, Jacqueline, you talk about love all the time, but when it's, when then it comes, we're sitting at the at the negotiating table, and you're hardcore." Yeah. And it's like, look, we're patient capital. We're not stupid capital. Right. And right. That, you know, that, that love actually is about caring so much that you want other people to succeed. Hmm. That
1: is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that requires expectations and helping. That requires expectations because if we growing, think that they're going to be, you know, yeah.
0: that's right. Yeah. And we have to set standards high so that people live up to it. Because if we put low expectations on people, we all know very well that people that all yeah. of us yeah. will stoop down to them. Right, and so that's what love is.
1: Yeah, I also, you know, I feel like it, what's so odd to me when the word love gets used in public spaces, and you're doing that, and I'm doing that, and I hear so. I feel I hear that rising up, and one reaction people have, like you're talking about these like investors, is that it's soft, but. We know, each and every one of us in our actual lives, that it is the hardest thing. And it's not laissez-faire, right? That we, the people we love the most, there's a lot of It is of the engagement. hardest thing. And inside
0: of it is yeah. another secret we don't talk about enough, which is for anyone who is caretaking someone who's been sick or who has lost someone for anyone who's accompanying someone in a real way, Um, there are times when that love takes every ounce of courage and perseverance that you have in your body. And those are also the times when you like yourself the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, I think that is the opportunity we have right now in the world that we feel like there's such darkness around us. But we all know that it's in those times that we can elevate ourselves. If we get outside of the small parts of ourselves, which right now are being sparked mm-hmm. too right. often right. by the frankly the easy stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. So I would love to walk through some of the the language you use that to me it has such power to move the, the practices that you describe for. Yeah, somewhere I think you were speaking to Acumen and you said, you know, we started with patient capital. Like that was the first – the first uh, – Big idea. Big idea. And then you realized was that what – you you needed metrics – you needed metrics that matter – that measure what matters, not just what counts. And then what you've realized and are living into on so many fronts is that, that it, we need moral leadership. And you're speaking – you're working with entrepreneurs all over the world. Um, and a lot, I mean, they they mostly look really young to me when I see the pictures. <laughs> I mean, there must be some who are a little older, but there are so many young people, right? This new generation you're talking about. This is realized they're out there. They're they have their feet on the ground, and 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 and. But you're saying what we need is moral leadership. So, some. I just want to walk through some of the. Some of the ingredients of that, I think, that you describe, that you name. And one of them, you said this a minute ago, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more about it. Holding audacity and humility, both of those. Yeah, um, holding opposites, intention.
0: Audacity and humility in almost everything we do. Um, Audacity to imagine the possible But the humility to recognize that you are working through layers and layers and layers of the difficulties. An example of turning over capitalism, which I which gives me great hope, is a guy named Tyler Youngblood, who, you know, classic goes to Columbia, um, loves coffee, and while he's there, sees that the coffee farmers making some of the most expensive and Um, Highest quality coffee in the world can barely afford to live. In fact, some of them are losing money and thinks this can't work. He sees that part of the problem is that coffee, even today, is dictated by global commodities prices. So that if you spend $5 for Starbucks, that has no bearing on the actual farmers that grow the coffee beans they're paid according to whatever global commodities prices are, which are mostly set by futures traders, um, right? And so he's got the audacity, as well as other entrepreneurs like him, you're seeing this small but mighty movement, to say, why do we have to do same old capitalism?" and And so he ignores global commodities prices altogether and hmm. Negotiates with the farmers to understand their production costs. This takes a lot of humility because the farmers don't trust him either. Why should they? Um, it takes time. It takes making mistakes. Uh, it takes being seen as as naive, idealistic. Um, mm. You put the mm. you know you can put the adjective in there. It's lonely, and um, and he sticks to it. The other elements of moral leadership, you know, resilience, and um, and then he learns through that immersion that the smallholders value the stability of income even more than they value the risk of high mm. commodities pricing that will then hit a low, and so um, it, it's a long process. But he finally recognizes that what he has to, has to ultimately do is create a community of trust, fully transparent building in the farmers so that they get paid now two to three times what hmm. uh, the global pricing would dictate, that then they can show the buyers of that coffee um, why they should pay a higher price, because they're going to get higher quality of coffee, because the farmers understand what they're part of, and then the consumers can feel proud as well. So it required enormous audacity to build Azahar. Um but man, the humility is not only in recognizing the world that it is, but it is in um, withstanding the scorn, the embarrassment, the laughter of peers who see you as the opposite of success, even though you are driven by a moral compass that is trying to fundamentally break a system. And when it works, and the great thing now, that I'm seeing in the world is more and more it can work, um, then you've really lived into your whole self. And that allows you to build a world that's more whole.
1: Mm. One thing that you say to young people, but I think, I mean, all of us, This the way we live now. We're always we're so often starting over again at different stages in life. Hmm. Is that you know? There's this idea, and I'm so aware of it as with with people in their twenties who are in my life in different ways. That there's this sense, which I remember from my own twenties, but I really think it's an American pathology that you're supposed to know. You're supposed to know yourself. You're supposed to know what your mission is, your purpose, your gifts. You're supposed to know that when you're 21 or even 29, Hmm. and and you've said. You know, you don't plan your way into your purpose. You live your way into it. And the story you just told is is an example of that. But I think you've also lived that as well. hmm Yeah. I gave a speech. Um, it was really
0: funny in L.A. once. Um, and I was talking about toilets and drip irrigation and— Artificial insemination and all these crazy— <laughs>
1: What are you talking about? Because we were, you were working with entrepreneurs and those things? Or? I was. Well, I was
0: particularly in, in uh, drip irrigation and in um, toilets. We okay. have a lot of toilets. Okay. Um, and, um, <laughs> and it was a very tony crowd of women about our age. And um, when I finished, uh, a, a woman who looked like she had everything in the world stood up. Um, truly, like, imagine, you know, lots of gold bangles, mm. and she was perfectly quaffed, and she said, you know, you're so lucky. Um, you knew your purpose so early in, in your life, and me, I have everything, but I have no idea mm. where what mine is and what advice would you have for me. And, um, and it was so ironic, given that um, I didn't think my life... Would look so exciting to, right. um, yeah. <laughs> to her, and um, and suddenly I noticed this group of very low-income um, teenagers that had also been invited uh, to sit in the crowd, and I, I part of me felt frustrated, and I said, you know, I think we're we're raised to ask the wrong questions, you know. I'll be happy when I'm. More beautiful when I'm thinner, when I'm richer. Mm. Instead, if you start to ask, what am I doing to make other people feel more beautiful? If I, what am I doing to make other people have a level of income so that they can make decisions? What am I doing to make other people healthier? You'll find your purpose. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was, I said it was somewhat of an edge, and um, and afterwards she came up and she was really really emotional, and a whole other group of women came, too, and said, what you said before, Krista, this is a conversation we need to have in our 50s, not just in our 20s. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is, you know, we, were, we, were, we grew up in a system that, that told us this other thing. Yeah. Um, and then we woke up one day and we're like, well, I got all that, but it doesn't feel so good. In fact, mm-hmm. it's a little bit lonely on the mountain. And... Um, and, and and rather, can we teach each other, and I do think we teach for each other, and these entrepreneurs have been the greatest teachers of my life, as well as their customers, if we teach each other that is in the difficult that we find ourselves, and that it is in committing to something so big, we will not complete it in our lifetime, Yeah, that we are able to renew ourselves and if we find ways to sustain keep our sparkle.
1: Yeah, and it it does also it, you you've you touched on this. It's what questions are we asking of ourselves? And I think the questions are so contradictory that people are going around asking of themselves now in their in their 20s, but yes in their 50s too because on the one hand, even if we say We're wanting to be purposeful. I love you saying, like, asking the question. Are we asking the question of how we're helping other people see their purpose or feel more beautiful? But we're also asking, how do I look? You know, does this look like a success? Do I have the resume I want? Um, Am I making enough money? Well, just as much as we
0: yearn to be good, Mm. we yearn to belong. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually found myself starting a chapter about um, corruption, and I've learned more about that than I ever wanted to learn in my life. But but I ended up writing instead about the conformity trap, Mm. because I think that where we get stuck in a world that defines success by money, power, and fame is that we want to be part of the world that we grew up in. Yeah. And it's Super difficult and lonely uh, to go against that grain. Yeah, it's very and magnetic. So it's magnetic, mm-hmm. and 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 many young people around the world grow up in cultures and in family cultures where honoring the family somehow by getting into the great school and getting the great job and making all the money is more important than honesty.
1: Yeah.
0: it's more important than service because. For generations, service was seen as do-gooding, and making a lot of money was seen as success. And so, I think we're in this great transition, yeah. which again is why I come back to a moral compass rather than a roadmap, because you have to find the the, the moral courage to stay on the path, and it's why finding a cohort of people who can accompany you and um, encourage you, but also keep you honest. Yeah, um, is so important. Yeah, it's why the work you do and why this this incredible podcast that you do is so important because you're saying to
1: a whole community of people who want something deeper, hey, there are other people like you. Mm-hmm. You know, something I've been so inspired um, by is a question that you that you ask all over the world. Um, to all kinds of people who you meet, um, what are you doing when you feel most beautiful? Mm. Um, you know that's a question that elevates right and and I, I'm just curious how did you how did you how did you discover that question and and what's the power that you've experienced in it
0: um, You know, I actually started asking that in interviews, and and while it does elevate eventually, sometimes it completely confounds, particularly with young men who are very nervous and want the job.
1: Oh, Oh, in job interviews, you started asking it. (laughs) I started asking (laughs) in job interviews, and they'd be like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) And
0: I would find myself like, well, you know, when you're on fire, when you're in the zone, when you're doing what you love. Because I wanted to get to—I got to a point in my life, and this again goes to character, where— I started to realize that I'm interviewing these kids, but if they don't realize that they've got to interview me too, then there may not be a fit here. Mm -hmm. And so I want to understand where will they thrive? Where will they become the best people that they can be? And so this was my poetic way of trying to get there, but sometimes with guys (laughs) it would totally um, take us into the wrong direction. But Mm -hmm. now, you know, I'm old enough that I still persevere with it. And then I thought, Um, when I was in this slum in um, Mumbai that I wanted to see how would this play with um, really low-income people. And I was sitting with a group of um, slum dwellers, all all women who also had been um, sexually abused. And and they were a tough crowd at the beginning. They had no reason to trust me. It wasn't my work. Um, I was visiting another um, organization's work. And uh, I said, I have a question for you guys. What are you doing when you feel most beautiful? And at first there was just the stare, mm-hmm. silence, discomfort, and I just let that hang. And then I saw this one particularly forlorn-looking woman um, whose name was Mushakbi, and I said, Mushakbi, um, tell me. And she said, I never feel beautiful. Mm-hmm. I feel ugly. Mm-hmm. And I said, certainly, there's some time in your life in your day. And she's like, You don't know how ugly and hard my life is. I said, I I don't. And I still know that you are beautiful and you're human and you wear sparkly bangles. There's something in you that knows. And then she thought, and then she said, Actually, I work as a gardener at this corporation, and my job is this one patch of garden. And when the flowers come through. It makes me feel beautiful. And she said, and last year I got got an award for the best garden. And she just beamed. Hmm. And then she was like, could we go to my house so I could show you my award? (sighs) And, um, And I watched this transformation of a woman who was living a narrative that there was nothing good in her life or in her being. And I also saw how a beautiful question. Yes, could at least for a brief moment allow her to access a narrative that contained within it the elements of her own beauty as well.
1: Mm. That's fantastic. You you do make this direct connection between um, listening listening and leadership, which I I I don't think is. Um, in most of the manuals on leadership. <laughs> well, Even if it were in the manuals,
0: we're not seeing a lot of it out in the world right now.
1: No, but you say, you say listening with your whole body as part of a leadership. I think that that
0: actually is where leadership needs to begin. And that when you walk into a room, your job is to understand the people around you. That's your job. And not to come in with assumptions of who they are, but to be open. And that the, again, going back to audacity and humility, you know, I think I can change entire sectors. Um, But to come in with the humility of knowing that I can't know your reality. And so not only do I want to to know who you are, but I need to listen not to convince you and not to change you but to to possibly change myself.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's when you go into that place that possibility emerges and that we can find a co-created solution um, that allows us to create real change. And again, when I see entrepreneurs that are not just changing and building companies but in some ways they're helping to build nations Hmm. or parts of nations. That critical listening skill is at the essence of who they are.
1: Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've I've found it really helpful to. This is this is pulling back a little bit from from this conversation we're having about this realm of entrepreneurship and leadership um, and economic life, which is just another way to talk about human life to um, but it's very resonant with how you've also looked at you know what's been happening in our country and in mm-hmm. the world in these last few years, which we've tended to kind of measure the milestones in terms of elections right? but um but but you also seeing and articulating that this is It's right. It's about human beings. I mean, you you wrote after the 2016 election, um, and I'm really, you know, this is really echoing with what you said a minute ago about um, the opposite of poverty is dignity. You said this was an election about dignity, about being seen, about feeling counted, it was about people who wanted their voices heard so powerfully that they were willing to overlook language and actions they would never accept in themselves or their children. And I really appreciated the place you went later in the piece where you said, and whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton won the election, Um, the U.S. would be staggering, wounded, and bleeding, left to wonder how we got to a place where we feel we hardly know each other. Yeah. Yeah. This is where I think we have
0: an opportunity um, to build the skills of identity. Um, What worries me is I see identity too often used as a bludgeon rather than a tool and a mechanism to enhance our understanding of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that same vein, we are so focused on our own identity that we're missing the opportunity of recognizing that, yes, we need to learn about our identity and the many different component parts of our identity so that we can connect with those similar identities that exist in other people who on the surface may seem completely different than ourselves. Um, And that's also a skill, and it's one that takes a lifetime to master, but we can all start on the path. Mm -hmm. Um, I had great experience with the... um, I think you may have inter- interviewed Jonathan Haidt, actually. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah. um, I had a great privilege of taking John to India. And Jonathan has studied um, shame and marginalized peoples and, of course, how we use language.
1: Right. What's his t- and, was um, his book, The Moral? What is the name of his book?
0: The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Mind. Yeah. yeah the Righteous right. Mind, so which how is we, so yeah. spectacular. yeah. yeah. And so um, we do something that we took from the oral history project, StoryCorps, which you've also interviewed, Dave Isay. Yeah. And um, where—but instead of putting people face to face, we do something that we call story walks because we found that when you let the air blow around people, um, magic can sometimes happen. Mm. And the idea is that you go walking with each other 20 minutes. um, One person talks— Tells their story, and the other person asks. Then the other person asks questions for ten minutes, and then you repeat on the way back. And it's good to do it in a group. We brought the group back, um, and I had paired Jonathan with a guy named Vimal Kumar, who is from the scavenger caste, which is the Hmm. lowest caste in India. These are people consigned to essentially picking up human waste, um, usually with some cardboard or plastic, and. um, And so then when you get back, um, you're supposed to introduce each other, and some do it in the first person. So John started and said, "Um, I'm introducing Vimal, so I'm going to speak as Vimal. And he said, I'm Vimal Kumar, and I was born in the scavenger caste. We are the people consigned to um, picking up waste, and no one ever touches us. And he said, um... uh, My mother, however, got a job uh, at a private school, and they allowed uh, me to go to school as a result of it, but we couldn't afford a uniform. I I had to go to school in rags, and I sat in the back of the class, and I never spoke. But my mother was so proud that when I was 8 years old, she um, invited the whole school over to have a birthday party, and she spent two days cleaning the house, preparing for it. And then on the day of the party, no one showed up. And John started uh, crying, hmm. and he said, so I'm sorry, but I have an 8-year-old son. Hmm. And the truth is, Vimal and I don't have anything in common. He said, I am from a privileged background. I went to the best schools. I live in New York City. I'm a professor. My children have no want, and um, and I can't even believe that Vimal has been able to survive in in the way that he's so extraordinary. And then Vimal took a deep breath and he said, no, John, you're wrong. Mm. He said, you love India. I love India. (laughs) We both have two children. We've both studied shame. He said, and besides, John, you're a Jew. You understand what it feels like to have people think about you in a certain way for no reason other than what you were born. And, um, and finally, John, we both have PhDs. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's good. Um, and, you yeah. know, when you look at that, if, th- if these two can bridge that gap, yeah. we in the United States, who have so much in common, right. can find our ways to mm-hmm. heal ourselves and to see ourselves in each other again, that we have a common endeavor in this country, to build a country where we can make good on the promise that all men were, and women were created equal um, and then we can help extend it to everyone on the planet um, because we represent the planet now in ways that have so much to teach if we would just take that
1: privilege seriously and and I you know I feel like all of these Practices um, that you have described and written about that we've been talking about about figuring out how to how to be both audacious and humble, um, how to understand that you don't plan your purpose but live your way into it, and 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 ask that question of of what you're doing of. Of of carrying around beautiful questions, powerful questions, like what are you doing when you feel more beautiful? Of listening not to convince or to convert, but to change yourself. I mean, these are these are everyday practices that can be transformative and right and immediately transformative. And and, you know, just that story you just told. Like this this is all happening, right? All kinds of people all around us are making these these moves, Um, I sometimes think of this as the the generative narrative of our time that just doesn't get a light shone on it, the way the dysfunctional, destructive narrative of our time is so privileged and so heavily investigated. And I just, you know, your work is full of these stories of this generative map that is emerging. Absolutely. And the exciting thing now, Krista, which... I
0: couldn't have said 10 years ago, is that it's not pretty language and it's not just a few people, it is a movement that is happening around the world and that the role models who are emerging are not reaching thousands of people, they're reaching millions of people. In the case of DeLight, 100 million people, Mm in the case of a company called Ethio Chicken in Ethiopia, 4 million farmers. Um, who are changing their entire lives, reducing child malnutrition by 11%, that there's a hard edge to these scaled companies that can only exist if you bring on a different skill set that understands how to put capital in its place, how to partner with government um, rather than malign it, um, Mm. how to... Understand identity and build inclusive organizations, and I'm not just talking, as you said, about entrepreneurs. We need to use these same skills all of in our, our universities, yeah, all of our disciplines, in the military, lawyers, in every discipline, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, our lawyers, yeah, in our healthcare system, yeah. um, to make it patient-centric. Educa- all of this needs to be an education about and this whole person, educating this whole person.
0: That's right, and mm-hmm. that's why you know some a, a few young people are like, well, Jacqueline, you're you're known as the pioneer of, of patient capital and impact investing, and yet your book is all about moral leadership. And I say like, because at the end of the day, that's the work.
1: Yeah,
0: I can, with all respect, hire really smart young people to to do spreadsheets and valuation, but building a company that disrupts a system and creates a market that reaches hundred million really poor people, that is a leadership play. Mm. And as you also imply, I'm not just talking about entrepreneurs or organization builders. I'm talking about social workers
1: and nurses and all of us. Yeah, yeah. And that scale is the upside of that technological revolution that we did get, right? That is the generative possibility to be able that that good can be amplified at such a different scale now than was true when you and I were growing up. If we keep these technology and this capital in its place,
0: yeah, and we realize that it's up to us to bring the moral aspect to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love the story you tell about um, was it follicula. Is that how you say her name? nun, mm. uh, this enterprising nun who also became one, one of Rwanda's first three women parliamentarians. And she was such a friend and mentor and partner to you when you were so young there starting out. Um, would you tell the story of – and she died, right? She died. Well, she was murdered. She was murdered. Um, and yeah. would you tell the story of how – Suddenly or just a few years ago, her name was invoked in a new century, in a new world. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, for me in so many ways, sometimes many roads lead back to Rwanda. Um and it was it was literally thirty years almost to the month um when I first arrived in Rwanda to set up that microfinance bank and Felicula was one of three women parliamentarians, um, who were my co among my co founders. And um And she was the one I loved most, and she really kind of wrapped her arms around me and talked about crossing every line of difference and taught me so much about her country. Um, She didn't have such a head for business, but she had a heart for the world, man, and I loved her. And um, uh, one of the first things she and her fellow parliamentarians did, women parliamentarians did, was to eradicate Bride Price a few years into their tenure. And... Um, it was too quick, probably,
1: for their constituency. And, what, and, and to explain what that meant. So, bride price,
0: uh, which still exists um, tr- in traditional form, um, was that you would um, uh, an enterprising and prospective son-in-law would would gift his prospective father-in-law um, three cows um, to marry the man's daughter. And Felicula was really insulted with this idea of reducing women to chattel yeah. and wanted to change it. And so um, a few days after this law was passed, it was rescinded um, in another vote. A big backlash oh. happened, and Felicula was killed in a mysterious hit-and-run accident. And that was really the first time in my life at age 26 that I had to confront the price some people pay. hmm for rejecting the status quo, um, and then we went on to build this bank, and then the genocide happened, and um, the women with whom I had, the surviving women with whom I had started this bank, ended up playing every conceivable role, including um, bystander, victim, and perpetrator, hmm. and so um, the bank continued to, you know, stumble along somehow in those early years after genocide. Um, and now here I am 30 years later, and I'm standing in um, a hotel reception with the president of the country and most of his ministers.
1: And and in I'm Kigali, to, right?
0: In Kigali, yeah. the same place. Um, and except, you know, I'm a much older woman <laughs> with, you know, wrinkles on my face to show it. And I know the downsides of what this work can be. And I, um, and yet, because of the work we've done with patient capital and trying to build um, a whole new energy sector for the poor across the world, particularly Africa, I'm laying out this vision for this $70 million for-profit off-grid energy fund that's going to help electrify the country. And before I get on stage, a young woman walks up to me and says, "Miss Novogratz, I think you knew my auntie. And I said, really, what was her name? And she said, well, her name was Felicula, And I burst into tears. Hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, who are you? And she said, my name is Monique. I'm the deputy general of the central bank.
1: And and I
0: literally, still crying, I turned to the president and his ministers and I said, if you had told me 30 years ago when we were starting that microfinance bank that in one generation a woman – would be running the economic sector, <laughs> the financial sector. I'm not sure we would have believed you. Yeah. You know, maybe our dreams weren't big enough. And I understood in that moment that I was back in Kigali on that night to complete work that we, that Felicule had started but couldn't complete in her lifetime, and that at this point in my life, I needed to continue that work, but also dream dreams so big I won't complete them in my lifetime, but to enable another generation to take that work forward too. And that was really the night, Krista, that I resolved to write a love letter to the next generation and um, try to share the lessons that so many of these incredible change agents had taught me because though this little institution that we had started endured the murder of Felicula and genocide and so many challenges, the work had continued hmm. anyway. Her work had continued, and it continues today. And that all of us stand on the work of those who went before, before hmm. us. And it's really our, our individual and collective obligation in a world that focuses too much on our rights and not enough on our responsibilities. It's our collective obligation to take that work forward and imagine and then integrate human dignity, sustainability, and elevate the best of ourselves and bring ourselves to each other. And I think in this moment of such peril and possibility, if we tapped into that stirring, that awakening, we really could build a world like the world has never seen before. And um, if there was ever a decade to do it,
1: it's this decade. Yeah. And this century may require that of us if we're to flourish in it, right? I think this century
0: yeah. does require yeah. it of us. Yeah. And, and that—I'm not a shame person, but, man, I want future generations to look back <laughs> on us and say, look how hard they tried. Right. Not—
1: Look at how blind they were. Yeah. Um, this is really granular, but I think really helpful. Um, uh, you describe, in the book, how you have kind of modified the Jesuit examen, examine,
0: examine, um,
1: <laughs> which is supposed to be five steps, and I've tried this, so I found this really useful because <laughs> I never was able to stick with the five steps. Five is too many. Okay. <laughs>
0: I know that that's sacrilege,
1: a, but you've turned it and you've turned it into three. So just talk about this because this is a a daily practice that you weigh, weave into. That I try okay, to okay. do it every day. I'm sure I you don't missed, do it every I know single you day. It. All right, let, we but get when hit.
0: I do do it. My day is different, and that is to start with intention. What do you want to accomplish in the day? Who do you want to be? And then check in with yourself later and ask yourself how you did. Um, do an account. And um, what you learn from it? And then importantly, forgive yourself <laughs> for what you didn't do or what you did poorly. And then the imp- most important part of all is to express gratitude. Um, and when I do those those acts, um, whether you call it three or four, uh, I feel like I'm moving,
1: and I'm also at the same time grounded. One thing we haven't—one word we haven't discussed today—well, no, you've you've mentioned accompaniment. It's an important word to you. It's an important word to me, but also as I feel it emerging all over the place— um, I didn't realize you—you you taught me this. That this is this was also a Jesuit phrase. I it did is. not know that. Um, I think I'm just—I want to read this beautiful. It's a couple of paragraphs from your book, but um, I feel like something that you, you have said this, but to underscore it, right? It's everything you've been talking about. This moral leadership that we are all called to, whatever our sphere because all of our spheres have to be transformed in this way, we're not called to do it alone, which was also a 20th century lie. It was a lie. All right. So this is, this is we surround ourselves with others who can hold us and hold it, the work, on the days that we can't. So anyway, you wrote, This is the secret of accompaniment. I will hold a mirror to you and show you your value, bear witness to your suffering and to your light, and over time you will do the same for me, For within the relationship lies the promise of our shared dignity and the mutual encouragement needed to do the hard things. Whatever you aim to do, whatever problem you hope to address, remember to accompany those who are struggling, those who are left out, who lack the capabilities needed to solve their own problems. We are each other's destiny. Beneath the hard skills and firm strategic priorities needed to resolve our greatest challenges, Lies the soft, fertile ground of our shared humanity. In that place of hard and soft is sustenance enough to nourish the entire human family. So beautiful. So true. Oh, thank you for
0: saying that. Mm. And um, in my way of seeing the world, um, I think accompaniment is so critical. And again, I think it's so hard. Um, and when you do it best is when you're not asking for thanks in return. I also, going back to this country, America, I also think, Krista, that it could be an organizing frame for how we think about a big part of our economy that we're overlooking.
1: Accompaniment um, could be an organizing frame.
0: I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, I've seen it in companies in Africa and in South Asia, not just companies, in in solutions Um, where, you know, you look at the HIV crisis um, and the AIDS crisis of southern Africa, and community members were trained in um, showing up for people with HIV positive who had to take their antiretrovirals and um, combine that with eating high-caloric food. And so the community members were trained in the rudiments of hmm. healthcare, and they would show up, they would check on whether they had taken their meds, et cetera, et cetera, and they would also help stave off the isolation and loneliness that comes often with any uh, chronic disease. And so um, I'm seeing a generation of young people in the United States bring home some of these models, accompaniment models, mm-hmm. um, which I think – Given our opioid crisis, given our incarceration crisis, given our healthcare crisis, could play um, extraordinarily uh, an extraordinarily powerful role. Um, I tell the story of City Health Works, which works, which has, which trains women from the community in Harlem, New York. Yeah, um, they they. Again, basic health skills—they show up and teach women who have chronic diseases like diabetes and um, hypertension simple things. Go to the grocery store, how to buy food, how to go on Um, walks—not how to go to walks—they go on walks with them. They 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 bring them into community, and they have so reduced the number of hospital visits that they've created a revenue stream from government to the organization enough so that they can cover all their costs, become profitable. So suddenly you have an economic and social model that has at the heart of it a healthier community, a more efficient government, and a stronger civil society.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the reframe. Mm. And so we think about accompaniment as a, as a beautiful, soft skill. You and I know how hard it is, but beyond <laughs> sure. that, if we had the real moral imagination, we could begin to create economic models that made sense for all of us and not just for a chosen few of us
1: yeah again aspirational and fiercely pragmatic i love <laughs> I love that thank you <laughs> well you inspired it um oh, this has been so fantastic I, I i mean you may have spoken your last word in terms of how we'll edit this but um Oh, it's just so rich declan um if but if i so if i if I ask you today this week, you know what 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 is making you despair, and where are you finding hope um, what comes to mind right now? Of course, we're talking about a hard edged hope, not a squishy hope, yeah um I, I sometimes you know people see me and they think it's
0: um all light, but um I see the I see the dark I live in and work in places where um, I see growing fear. Um, you know, one of the biggest lessons in my life, Krista, has been that we we can't separate the world into monsters and angels yeah. um, and that there's nothing like uh, loving people and knowing friends who played different roles of the genocide including being perpetrators like having to, that, that makes you have to confront that most raw element of what it means to be human mm. and the only conclusion I could make was that there are monsters and angels in each of us and that those monsters really are our broken parts there are insecurities there are fears there are shames and then in times of insecurity Uh, it becomes really easy for demagogues to prey on those broken parts and sometimes make us do terrible things to each other. We're seeing that all over the world right now. And we have to fight against that. And that's where the moral revolution becomes a matter of whether we choose to dive into the, the, the dark a perilous path, or whether we choose to create a narrative and make that narrative real, which is our shared destiny, the possibility of collective human flourishment, our repairing and making the earth in ways that make it more beautiful, hmm. and the choice is ours. And so my hard-edged hope comes from Having lived and worked in communities that have had to contend with both, and you know, like flowers breaking through granite, I'm going to choose hope every time. And um, and I, frankly, despite all the dark, I remain a stubborn, persistent, hard-edged, hopeful optimist. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> I do,
0: (laughs) and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Jacqueline. This is you are so wonderful, Krista. Thank
0: you for the work you do. Thank you for the way. I saw Seth Godin yesterday. Oh, you did. And he told me that um, he's done. Did he say seven (laughs) thousand? What interviews? (laughs) Interviews in his life. Or books, but it's there's written. only no. Uh, it could yeah. be books he's written. Yeah, Seven thousand interviews his yeah. life, and there's one that he sends oh. to oh. everyone. Mm-hmm. That you brought out parts of him that he didn't even know he had. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about what it, What are you doing when you feel most beautiful?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Your gift is you accompany people in the minutes that you have them, and in the lifetime that you have, and you make us all feel more beautiful. So oh. I am. So honored to know you
1: well, and to know that you're in the world. You, too. You, too. Thank you. And we will air this right when the book comes out. I know it's on the schedule, so but you'll hear more about that, more details closer to the time. Okay. Thank you and could have talked I know. for many hours. I know, but we did it in 90 minutes. <laughs> it's pretty
0: awesome. It you is. did it. It is.
1: Thank you. You just did your first... Interview for this book, too. Now you can cross that off the list. You know, can I just tell
0: you, I was like, uh, I just hired a wonderful new um, uh, communications director. And yeah. I was like, I am not prepared. I have not done any preparation. She was like, Jacqueline, it's
1: all in you. It is. It is. Good. So I hope you just know that now. Just relax. See, that's one thing I that you do. don't need to worry about.
0: I do. Except that then I can be like, you know, you have this, you, you forget that you're supposed to talk about some things. I'm like... Because I can go deep, deep, deep into the poetry and but like you said, this is the this is the work, Krista. This Mm -hmm. is our work. Yeah. Yeah. Identity, all this stuff that everybody wants to avoid and and they want to cancel each other and push each other out. This is our work. Yeah. And this is where you and I will work together. And we are
1: comrades. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Have a beautiful rest of the day.
0: Have a beautiful rest of the day. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Bye Bye bye.